All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now listen, that's a prayer, that's a reality that, that's not just present for the moment. You need to begin to live conscious of this truth. So whether it's your life or the life of a loved one, a friend, understand that Jesus is present to save. He is present to deliver. And the greatest salvation and the greatest deliverance is not just taking sickness out of our bodies or, or delivering us from physical addictions. The greatest deliverance, the greatest healing is that he would take us out of sin and death and transport us into his eternal life. When that happens, I'm telling you what, everything begins to change. The change doesn't happen from the outside in. The change happens from the inside out. This is what we're talking about today when we talk about resurrection and the power of resurrection. So 1 Corinthians, let's, let's look at verse 12. Let me read from verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And Christ, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is still in a tomb somewhere, then our preaching is empty, your faith is empty. There is no point in anything that we're doing here today. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. And, if you, are, and you are still in your sins. Listen, it wasn't just Jesus dying on a cross. If all Jesus did was die on a cross and he died and was buried and that's it, our sins are not paid for. Our faith is futile. That's why when we talk about the cross, we do not talk about the cross apart from his resurrection. The cross is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. A dead Jesus on the cross, a dead Jesus in a tomb does nothing for us if there is no resurrection. This is what Paul is saying. If there is no resurrection, we are all men the most pitiable because there is no point to our preaching. There is no point to our believing. There is no point to our faith. We have no hope beyond this life if Christ is not risen. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Verse 20, but now, that's a word you should mark in your Bible. But now Christ is risen, risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who has put all things under is accepted. Now, 
when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So I want you to see from verse 20 to verse 28, Paul gives us kind of, a, kind of an outline of Christ coming, what Christ did when he went to the cross, when he died, when he was buried, when he was resurrected, when he, was, when he ascended to the Father, he is ruling. He gives us this outline. Now, he says, now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By man, that's the first Adam, death came to all. By man, that's the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. In Adam, the first man, all die. In Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the second man, you see that those words, those references are in verses 45 and 47 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Jesus is called by Paul, the last Adam and the second man. By this last Adam, by Jesus Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. In Adam, all died in the first birth, but in Christ, all shall be made alive when they are born again in the new birth. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then, we have now, now Christ is risen. Then, that word then is important. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. What does that mean? He puts a, an end to all rule, all authority and all power. You know, a lot of people are upset because uh, I was talking to someone last week and, and uh, they, were, they were upset with our president. This was someone who I think actually maybe supported or voted for our president. I'm not trying to get political here. We've got problems with all of our political leaders. It doesn't matter what letter's in front of their name, right? It just doesn't matter. But there's a lot of people upset about the way our nation is and the, the course of our nation and what's happening to our nation. Um, can I tell you something right now? There are going to be no flags flying in heaven. Listen to me. There will be no flags flying in heaven. There's not going to be a U.S. flag flying in heaven planted somewhere and finally America's going to be put back where her, her rightful place. She's going to be right back there with God. Listen, I hate to disappoint you, but that ain't going to happen. Listen, this is what's going to happen. There is coming a day when Jesus will put an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. The only kingdom that counts, the only government that counts is the kingdom that has no end, is the government whose increase in peace is taking place right now. For unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. That is the kingdom that is the government. That is the authority. That is Christ's rule. That is the kingdom of Christ that is ruling right now. And his kingdom and his rule and his authority is bringing an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. Earthly governments, good, bad, or ugly, doesn't matter. They're all going away. Christ has already conquered all of them. He is already ruling over all things. There is coming a day 
when he will give back to the Father and, and put in subjection to the Father all things. He will bring an end to all rule, all power, all authority. So listen, this nation as we know it, our government as we know it, one day, sooner or later, it's, it's going to disappear. Now, it may disappear into the glorious kingdom of God, and, and it may be a great transition, but it may not be either. The question is, where are your eyes focused? Is your eye focused on Christ? Are you looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith? Or are you looking to Washington or Austin or wherever? Listen, get your eyes on Jesus. His is the only rule, the only authority, and the only power that is eternal. Everything else is temporary at best. That was free. That really wasn't even part of the message, but okay. So now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Until then, until what's the then? The then is when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Until then, Christ must rule. The last enemy that God will, that will be destroyed is death. Listen, one day there will be no death. There's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. Death is gone. Death is already defeated. We are just awaiting the day when death is finally, utterly destroyed. And that day is coming. Because the defeat of death has already taken place. So the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. And when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, the Father who put all things under the feet of Jesus, is accepted. And there's coming a day when all things will be made subject to Christ. And then Christ himself will also become subject to the Father. He already is. He was when he walked the earth. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I see my Father do it first. It's not that Jesus didn't have a will. It's not that Jesus didn't have a self-life. You have a will and you have a self-life. I have a will and I have a self-life and that's the problem. We let our will and our self-life run roughshod over everything and we live selfishly and we live self-centeredly. Jesus had a will and he had a self-life too, but when he walked the earth, he submitted his will and his self-life to the Father. It's not that Jesus couldn't do good things out of his own self, out of his own will. He could have, but he chose to submit all to the Father. Why? Because Jesus knew there was coming a day when he would present and give all to the Father and subject himself under the Father. So Jesus walked this earth and he only did what he saw his father do. He only spoke what he heard his father speak. How do we live and how do we walk? The point of this is not to make you feel condemned because you don't always do what God wants you to do. You're not saved because you don't feel condemned. You're not saved because you get everything right. You're not saved because your good things are going to outweigh your bad things. You're saved and the only reason you're saved is because Jesus has become your righteousness, because you and I have no righteousness. We have no capability to do good, for there is none good but God. Jesus himself said that. 
Paul writes, there is no one good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. See, the good news isn't you decided to seek after God one day and God let you find him. God's played in hide and seek with me and God let me find him. He could have hid from me and I could have never found him, but, but God let me find him. No, that's not the way it works. God didn't let you find him. You aren't looking for God is what the Bible tells us. You aren't even seeking him. The good news is you aren't looking for God. You didn't care a thing about God, but God came for you. He came looking for you. He came seeking you. And guess what? He found you. You know why? Because you can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. And the good news is even when you weren't seeking God, God found you and God saved you. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And one day, when he gives everything back to the Father, and even subjects himself, after ruling and reigning, why does he do that? The very last part of verse 28 tells us, he does that, that God that God may be all in all. He does it for the glory of the Father. That's why. Why did Jesus live the way he lived? He lived the way he lived for the glory of the Father. Why did Jesus only do what the Father did? He did it for the glory of the Father. Why did Jesus speak only what he heard the Father speak? He did it for the glory of the Father. Sometimes you ask, what is... What is the purpose of everything? I'll tell you what the purpose of everything is. The purpose of everything is the glory of the Father. The things, the situations, and the circumstances you question, that you wonder about, that you don't have answers for, listen, the ultimate answer is this. It is for the glory of the Father. Yeah, but I don't see how we get from point A to point Z. I don't see how we get from this horrible thing to the glory of the Father. It doesn't matter whether you see it or not. Because the scripture tells us that the end of all things, the chief purpose of all things is that God would be all in all. It is for the glory of the Father. Now God may give you light and God may help you understand or you know what? He may not. I'm just being honest with you. If I sat here and told you that, listen, if you just wait long enough, if you pray hard enough and, and read your Bible long enough, then all your questions are going to be answered. No. <laughs> they will not be. But here's what, here's what can happen. God can bring you to a place where it doesn't really matter anymore whether you know all the ins and outs or whether you know why exactly. God, why exactly did this happen? Why exactly am I suffering this? Why exactly am I walking through this fiery trial or suffering this tribulation? We can come to a place where we say, you know what? I don't really know why, but I know God's promise. And God's promise is this, that he works all things together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And you might say, well, how do I know whether that applies to me. Well, my question to you would be this. Do you love God? And if the answer is yes, then you don't have to worry about whether you're called according to his purpose because the Bible says you love God because God first loved you. And if God loved you first and gave you the 
capacity to love Him, then there's no doubt that you're called according to His purpose. And so you can stand on the promise, not to understand everything and have all your questions answered, but to know that God is working in my life and through my life. What's He doing? Ultimately, He is bringing about His glory. He is bringing all things together that God may be all in all. So Christ is risen from the dead now. Christ is reigning until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Why? That God may be all in all. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in verse 20, he says, at that day you will know, listen, this is important, at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And that day you will know that I, Jesus said, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you will know that you are in me, and you will know that I am in you. Do you know Today, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are in the Father. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And you're not going to get to heaven one day and hope. I had someone tell me this recently. I just hope when I get to the end of my life, I hope I'm forgiven. Listen, you don't have to hope you're forgiven. You can know that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are forgiven, not because you got it all right, not because you finally became a good manager over your sinfulness. No, because you finally realize that I'm dead. I've been crucified and the life I live is Christ. The righteousness I have is not my ability to manage my behavior. My righteousness is Christ and Christ alone. So one day when we get to the pearly gates, we're not going to stand at the gate and St. Peter's not going to be sitting there going, well, I don't know about you guy, you know, and Jesus runs up just before we're cast into hell. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let him come in. That ain't how it works. Because God doesn't even know us apart from Jesus. The only identity the Father knows is the Son. The only way you're going to be accepted in the Father is because you're in the Son. Because the only ID that they're going to look at in heaven is the ID of Jesus. They're not going to be looking at your ID. They're not going to be looking at all of your good and bad and hopefully your good outweighs your... That's not how it works. If you are in the Son, then you will be known by the Father because the Father knows the Son. And the only life that's acceptable to the Father is the life of the Son. You need to remember that. Now, let's go on, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. So, we're talking about resurrection. Now, Christ is risen. The resurrection of Christ. I want you to understand that the resurrection of Christ is an eternal, it's a present and eternal reality. I want to say that again. The resurrection of Christ is a present and eternal reality. Really what I should say is resurrection in Christ. 
Because if you are right now in Christ by grace through faith, you are in the resurrection. But we don't think of it in this way. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now Christ is risen. The word now speaks of a present and eternal reality that Christ is risen from the dead. But now Christ is. It conveys an ever-present reality. It's not that Christ will be. It's this reality that Christ is now risen and that Christ is now reigning over all things. Do you believe that? Do you believe Christ is now reigning over all things? Some of you are facing situations and circumstances. Do you really believe Christ is now reigning over your situation and your circumstance? You might say, it sure doesn't look like it, Pastor Jeff. It sure doesn't feel like it, Pastor Jeff. Christ reigning is not whether you are having a good day or a bad day, whether you're having an easy time or a difficult time. It's not whether you're walking on the mountaintop or whether you're in the valley. Christ rules on the mountaintop and he rules in the valley. Christ rules in the light, Christ rules in the darkness. Christ rules in the sweet, Christ rules in the bitter. The question is, do you know that he's ruling and that he's reigning? Because you need to know that. Not based on your circumstance, but based on the reality of who Christ is and what the scripture proclaims to us. Christ is now reigning over all things. Christ is ready to deliver the kingdom to God the Father. There's coming a day when the Father will say, now is the time. When Jesus will return and the final enemy will be put under and destroyed. That day is coming. I don't know when that day is, but it's coming. The resurrection of Christ is more than an historical event. You need to understand this, church. The resurrection of Christ is not just a historical event that took place some 2,000 years ago. It's a present and eternal reality now. If you are in Christ, you have already experienced the power of resurrection. The fact that your body, if it's laid in the ground one day, is going to be raised up is just, it's just a, it's just a natural consequence of a reality that has already taken place if you are in Christ right now. The power of his resurrection is now presently and eternally working in those who are Christ's. We shall be changed one day in the twinkling of an eye. Paul writes in this very chapter that we're studying, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. The fact that we're going to be changed one day in the twinkling of an eye is because we have already been changed into a new creation in Christ through the power of his resurrection. And because we are being changed and we are being transformed and we are being conformed into the image of the Son. 
It's an ongoing work that the Spirit of God is doing in you right now. It's like the seed that's planted in the ground. The seed doesn't look like a tree. The seed doesn't look like much of anything. But when the seed is planted and it dies and it comes undone in the ground, listen, because that's, that's exactly what needs to happen with all of us. We're, we're working so hard to hold our lives together, to keep it all together. I just need to keep it all together for Jesus. No, listen, what needs to really happen is you need to become undone. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I fell as a man dead. I was undone. You need to become undone, dead, crucified with Christ, so that Christ in his power and his life by his spirit can raise you up. And that little acorn you plant in the ground, doesn't look like a tree, but in that small acorn is an 80-foot oak tree. And there's a day when it just peeks through the ground. Still doesn't look like a tree, but right there is an 80-foot oak tree. And over the process of time and through the miracle of God's creative power and the miracle of life, that thing begins to grow and take form. And God, in his infinite wisdom, is molding and shaping what was just a little seed at one time into a majestic tree. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the Lord. It goes on to say, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, Christ is risen. Christ has become the first fruits. Christ has become the first fruits. This again is a present and eternal reality. It's not Christ will become or Christ is becoming, but Christ has become. He has become. He is already the first fruits, and we are the fruit that is to follow. I have no doubt that one day, if I'm laid in the ground, my dead body will rise again one day. Because I have already been raised with Christ. Because Paul says, I am already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that this outward man is perishing, but to be present, be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One day God will reunite our spirits with our bodies should we all go by way of the grave. But that's not the reality of resurrection. The reality of resurrection is right now. The reality of salvation is right now. It's not what you will be one day. It's what you are right now because this is who Christ is right now. It doesn't become an oak tree when it finally reaches 80 foot and spans 40 feet. Its limbs are reaching out there. It doesn't go from this to that. That's not what Paul's talking about when he's saying we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Listen, there is a salvation that's being worked out, that's being performed right now. The power of resurrection is working in you right now. And God is molding you and shaping you and transforming you right now. Because he is the first fruits. What is first fruits? What is that? What is that? 
make you think of? It refers to harvest. The word first fruits, it was a feast actually. Jesus was resurrected literally on the feast of first fruits. First fruits was the feast in Israel when they would take the first sheave of barley, the first of the grain harvest, the barley harvest, and they'd bring it into the temple and they'd wave it before the Lord. The very first sheave. No accident that Jesus was resurrected on first fruit. He was the very first sheave, the very first wave of grain offered to the Lord. So all those years Israel celebrated the feast of first fruits. What were they doing? Just thanking God for a good harvest? Yeah, they were, but, but God gave them that for something much greater. He said, I'm giving you a picture of my son because one day I'm going to send my son and one day he's going to be planted into the ground like a kernel of corn and he's going to die, but he's going to come out of the ground and he's going to be the first fruits of a great harvest. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest. It speaks of the seed planted into the ground and that springs forth from death into new life. Christ is not the first person to be brought back from the dead. Understand that. We can go and we can read in the Old Testament where, where Elijah resurrected the little boy. He stayed with this couple. They made him a room, a prophet's chamber. And he lived there when he would come through the area. And one day, the, the woman didn't have any children. And she said, oh, prophet, here, we've given our house to you, opened our home to you. What are you going to do for me? He said, oh, woman, what do you want? She said, I'm childless. I want a child. He prays for her, and she conceives and bears a child. Child grows up. One day, the child's out working with his dad in the field, and the child drops dead. Actually, the child was out not with the dad. Actually, if you read the story, because the woman says, don't tell the dad. Because the woman had faith. She said, call the prophet. Go get the prophet. He brought the son in, put him in the bed. The son's laying in the bed dead. Elijah gets there, and Elijah resurrects him. He raises him from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first person brought back from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, we read where Jesus, after four days, raises Lazarus from the dead. So Christ is not the first person to be brought back from the dead, but Christ is the first fruits of the promised seed. He's the first fruit of much more fruit to come. He's the first fruit of its kind. Listen, he's the first fruits of its kind from a new creation. There were people that were brought back from the dead before, resuscitated from the dead, but there was no one ever like Christ. Christ was one of a kind. He is the one new man that Ephesians 2 talks about. He was the one of a kind that was buried, that was resurrected. And now from his kind, he is the first fruits. So you're not going to just be brought back from the dead one day to die again. You're going to be resurrected in eternal life. Your body will be because your spirit and your soul has already been resurrected in Christ. Because you already, if you don't already have the resurrection life of Christ, then you're not saved. You might be saved and say, well, I didn't know I already have the resurrection life of Christ. Listen, that's the only way you can be saved. There is no other life except his life. God doesn't give us our life back. No, God 
says, you need to be crucified. You need the life of my son. And so the resurrection of Christ is more than just a historical event. It's us being raised up in Christ. It's us being changed and transformed and conformed to the very image. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes these words, If any man be in Christ, I want you to see that, in Christ. If any man be in Christ. doesn't say if any man knows about Christ. doesn't say if any man knows a whole lot about Christ. If any man just reads a bunch of books about Christ. If any man goes to church every week. If any man reads his Bible all the time. No, it says if any man be in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christ has become the first fruits. We are the fruits that follow in the new birth of a new creation. We go around and we try to fix people and we try to get people to manage their behavior and and manage their sinfulness. When in reality, they don't need a fix. They need a new birth. They need a new creation. We don't just need to help them learn better life principles. Listen, what they need is a miracle. Until someone receives the miracle of of the new life and the new creation in Christ, there's no hope for them. Jesus said it this way, they may gain the whole world, but lose their soul. And in the day that they lose their soul, all that they've gained of this world is not going to be worth anything to them. Our rags-to-riches stories mean nothing if we don't have Jesus. So Christ has become the first fruits. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So resurrection in Christ is a present and eternal reality. But resurrection in Christ is also a present and eternal plan. Look at verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So by the first Adam, the first man came death, but by the last Adam, the second man came the resurrection of the dead. In Adam, death came to all men. How did that happen? This death is not caused by our sinful behaviors. You know, you guys have heard this before, right? I tell you this all the time. It's, It's one of the best ways I can communicate this. You know, my dog is not a dog because he barks. My dog is a dog. My dog barks because he's a dog. You didn't, be, you didn't become a sinner when you started sinning. You were born a sinner, and sin was just a consequence of your birth because we are born in sin. This is what the Bible teaches us. Romans 3, it's very clear. So our sinfulness is just a natural result of our birth. So in Adam, this is why Paul says, in Adam, death came to all men. It was a consequence of our birth. This death in Adam came from the sinful nature each and every human being is born into. We are sinful by nature in our first birth, and this sinful nature produces all, 
produces in all of us our sinful attitudes. It produces our sinful actions. But our sin is much deeper than our attitudes and our actions. It goes to the core of our very being. And the only solution to be born, only solution to our sin is to be born anew, to be made a new creation. So the fact that you may live a very moralistic life and are a really good person, in God's eyes, that means nothing. Because your righteousness is not based on any of those things. There's only one righteousness that God recognizes. It is the righteousness of Christ. You can't work hard enough, go to church long enough, read your Bible enough to merit the righteousness of Christ. The only way you can receive the righteousness of Christ is by a gift of grace. That's why Ephesians says it's the gift of God. So death came to all men in Adam. And the only solution is to be born again as a new creation. But it says this, it says, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. So in Christ all shall be made alive. What does that mean, in Christ all shall be made alive? We, must, we, we need to be clear that in Christ, only those who are in Christ have the eternal life, have eternal life in Christ. Only those who are in Christ have eternal life in Christ. So all men, by virtue of their first birth, die. But all, by virtue of their new birth, all who are in Christ will be made alive. What does that mean? They are given eternal life. Who is eternal life? What is eternal life? That is the life of Christ. There's only one life that's eternal. That is Christ. So this eternal life that we have in Christ speaks of the very, the very life of Christ. I want you to understand that if you are saved today, if you are in Christ today, you have been given by virtue of God's grace the very life of Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead strengthens your mortal body. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives on the inside of you. The same life that was raised from, the, from that grave, from that tomb, is the same life that you have been given in Christ. This is what it means when it says, in Christ all shall be made alive. This is the life that is the power of his resurrection. This is the very life of the resurrected Christ given to us when we are crucified and raised with him in new life. All that are in Christ are raised up in the life of the resurrected Son of God. That's not true for all who are resurrected. One day, all will be resurrected. But only those who are in Christ will be resurrected to life. Those who are not in Christ are going to be resurrected, not to life, but to death. Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 says, this is the second death, being cast into the lake of fire. That verse tells us who's cast into the lake of fire, all those whose names are not written in the book of life. Well, whose names are written in the book of life? All those who have life. Who is our life? Christ is our life. 
all those who are Christ's are written in the book of life. All those not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. This is called the second death. Do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? Or I should say it more like this. Does Christ have you? Remember what I said last week? Christ is not someone that you bring into your life to make your life better. Christ is not someone you bring to you. Christ is not someone you possess. Christ must be the one who possesses you. Salvation is not a thing you have. Salvation is a person who has you. Does Christ have you? That is the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Does Christ have you? In Christ, this is the present and eternal plan and reality of all who have been born again. Being in Christ is not some place or some state that we find ourselves one day. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be born again, John 3, 3. It means to become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Or I love the way, I love the way Paul writes it in Galatians 2, 20. For all who can say, I have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you can say that, then you can say that you are in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be presently and eternally raised in his life. It's to live and move and have our very being in him. To be in Christ. By man, death came. By man, also came the resurrection. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. In Christ. Last week, we read from Paul's letter to the Philippians where Paul says, Oh, that I may know him. Do you know Christ? Is the cry of your heart to know him? To see more clearly Day by day, as you look in the mirror, Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beholding as in a mirror the very image. As we behold that image, he says, we are transformed into the very same image. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? Is the cry of your heart to know him more? Or is the cry of your heart that he just relieve your circumstance or your situation? Is Jesus your Savior or is Jesus your spiritual 911? Is Jesus the one you call on in an emergency? And when your emergency is done with, then you just kind of put Jesus away? Or do you recognize that without Jesus, you have nothing? That apart from Jesus, we have no life. There is no life apart from Jesus. 
There is no life in your moralism. There is no life in your attempts to keep the law. There is no life in your good acts and your good works. There is no life in any of that. There is only life in Christ. But if you have life in Christ, I'm telling you what, something will begin to grow from the ground of your heart, just like the seed that's put into the ground. It may look barren at first. It may look unrecognizable at first. But if the seed of God's word, if the seed who is Christ has truly been planted in the good ground of your heart, then something is going to grow. And God's not looking for an increase of your ground. He's not looking for more dirt. What he wants is an increase of the seed. What he wants is a harvest. So that's my question to you. Do you know him? Again, I want to ask you that. This week, I want to ask you again. Do you want to know him? Is there a desire to know him in your heart? If there's a desire to know him in your heart, God put that desire there then act on that desire. Live out of that desire to know him presently, right now, and eternally. Amen. All right, we're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up at verse uh, 22, 23 next week, and we'll go from there. Let's all stand. Here's my challenge to you. I leave you with this, that you would pray that you would know him. Not that you would know of him or about him, but that you would know him in spirit and in truth. That you would know him in ever increasing measure and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. Being conformed to his death and knowing that fellowship of his sufferings so that we will be conformed in ever-increasing measure to the power of his resurrection, in ever-increasing measure to his life. And out of that, know him and desire to continue to know and to grow in that knowledge. Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, and by the power of your Spirit, work in our hearts, work in our minds. Lord, work in us, that there would be a desire in us to know you, to know Christ. Not to just gain information, not to just have knowledge, but to truly know him. Lord, if that desire is not in us, if there are other things competing for that desire within our heart, I pray, God, that you would begin to deal with us and work in our lives, that you would begin to, by your grace and by your faithful hand, remove those distractions, remove those things, God, that would draw us away that would compete for our desires. 
Lord, not that it has to be either or, but that we would in all things, at all times, Lord, have as our greatest desire to know you. And so find our greatest joy in all things, at all times, whatever we may find ourselves doing, whether it is the sweet or whether it is the bitter, whether we're in the valley or whether we're on the mountaintop, that God, we would know that in you, in Christ, we have reason to rejoice. And we have reason to give thanks. Lord, we ask that you would do this, that you would be glorified in your church, in your people. God, help us find, rediscover the joy of our salvation in Christ Jesus. That you would not be some burdensome thing, but you would be our greatest joy. Lord, we pray this today in the name above all names. And we pray it, Father, that you would be glorified world without end. Amen.